Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later this hour, the word nerd from Merriam-Webster, Greenfield's Emily Brewster on the German and French mashup known as the English language. And Nerdwatch, literally. Star Wars nerds were like womp rats and bantha poodoo this weekend when Harrison Ford was at the Amherst College graduation. So we want to know the most famous person that you spotted in the wild in the 413 and what were they up to? Text us at 1-800-639-9120 and we'll read it at the end of the show. That's 1-800-639-9120. But first... We're really a museum of living things. We're here at the Berkshire Botanical Gardens. I'm Thaddeus Thompson. I'm the executive director. Hi, I'm Eric Requist, director of horticulture. Our mission is to inspire an appreciation for plants, essentially, the, the art and science of plants. And, you know, we have this beautiful place, so a lot of people come out just to enjoy the place, especially between the beginning of May and the end of October. Uh, that's when we're really hopping. But we offer courses year-round, everything from plant science and horticulture, how to garden, how to design your garden, to how to cook with plants, how to paint and draw plants. Anything having to do with plants, you can find it here. Show us the plants. Ah. <laughs> Just look around. That's all you got to do. But there's, How is, like, there's two parts to the yeah, botanical yeah. garden. Yeah. So, well, we, we were founded in 1934 on this sort of four corners here, just north of uh, or west of Stockbridge, and as a community-based organization. On this side of the, the south side of the campus, we've got more of our propagation and our education. We've got a, this vegetable garden. We've got the woodlands. And on the other side, we've really got our display gardens primarily. So 24 acres total. And we're also opening up a native plant meadow on the other wow. side. Nice. Oh, that's wicked cool. Yeah. Talk about the relationship the Berkshire Botanical Garden has with native plants. Kalise and I, as we were looking through all of the plant sale, I was saying how I planted vinca minor or myrtle, which I think is not a native plant and went crazy. Crazy, and I regret that now, 20 years after owning my house. But there's been a movement, I yep. think for good reasons, to move towards native plants. What's the Berkshire Botanical Garden sort of relationship to that movement? Well, for one, our collection is not exclusively native. We really display what grows best here in Berkshire County, but we really want to be mindful about what we grow, what grows well, what is the right place, what's also good for the environment, what's not pernicious, Eric, or invasive, invasive, really overly aggressive, plays well with others uh, in terms of- We have those too. Look and learn. Right. What not to plant as well. <laughs> this is, this is the cautionary tail garden. Well, as an example. You know I would love to see that actually. If you built a cautionary tail garden, I think it could oh, be really instructive idea. for most that. of us around here who make mistakes with the things they bring in going, oh, this is pretty. And then all of a sudden, two years later, you're like, oh my God, what have I done? I cannot get through this. Yeah, it's filled with poison ivy and Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, feed me, Seymour. That's right, boy. You can do it. I love it. I love it. That's a great idea. But here, like, for example, if you look over there, we've got something called Petasites that several people refer to as their favorite invasive. It's this, this beautiful yeah, leaf. and dramatic. It's like hostile. And it's been leaves. here for a long time, and we got to oh, figure out what to do with it. But your it's your parking lot, too. I can see you, like, digging through it and just being, like, trying to excavate around it. I don't know when Petasites was first planted here, maybe 20 years ago. It wasn't considered that way. Now it's part of this landscape. We have to decide whether to eradicate it or control it yeah i mean just down the street the fletcher steel designed garden at namkeg has it as a major feature because mm. it was originally used in the chinese garden and they said 
because it was outgrowing the Chinese garden. And he's like, oh, just keep three and throw them over on the bank. And it's become this <gasps> complete. Oh, wow. And it's a major feature because it really is so dramatic looking, yeah. but it's totally overcome this entire area of a stream from like one end of the block to the other. So there is a cautionary um, tale garden just yeah, right down the street. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Preferably located elsewhere. That's right. yeah. Besides this, have you had problems with other invasives well, on, there on are, your grounds? I mean, there's very like uh, gout weed, for instance, is like definitely sold in the trade in the in the early part of the cent last mm -hmm. century. So it's definitely out there, and it's gonna stay here. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough one to get rid of. Yeah. So we try to yeah. outcompete the things we right. don't want with things that we do want, For and that, that's kind of the metal. The Japanese butterbur, Pedicytes japonicus, is actually growing right through the gout weeds. So there, there's a cautionary <laughs> tale garden right yeah. there. What is it? The enemy of your enemy is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> so should we look at the other more the the gardens that people come out to come to sure. and see? Yeah. To yeah. go to take a walk. Yeah. So I've sung to your vegetables before. Lisa's oh. band has played here. Have you really? Did you do a Music Monday concert? Or no, we, well, we were out for the food bank event here, and then we got to play your fall festival. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I hope you're, are you going to come back again this year? Like, they seem not ready for as many people as my band had. We could build a bigger stage, you know. <laughs> so we're walking by your vegetable gardens. Yeah, Eric, how many do we have? 40 beds? Uh, 60, I believe. 60 beds. Beautiful. Um, Display of vegetables. You got. You're walking between our two greenhouses here, so where we do propagation and a display conservatory over there. Small. I also love the little structures here. You know, you've got this cute little what looks like a dollhouse near one of the greenhouses. You've got this log cabin. I saw this gorgeous siding that was, you know, planed but in really interesting patterns. Yeah, well, that. So right now we've got a lot going on. What you're referring to, I think, is Adirondack siding in the new camp building. Yeah, on the other side over there. So we have a really popular uh, youth camp, uh, four to twelve. It's farm in the garden camp. Come out here between June and uh, late June and August, and uh, kids are really engaged with the land. And we have some farm animals. We are building the, a new building for them. It's beautiful timber frame structure. Real artisan uh, craftsmen who built it. And then out front, you've got and there are seven species of different wood in there, uh, really chosen uh, for their beauty and locally sourced. And then this uh, black locust pergola classroom outside. And then we're building an amphitheater up in the woods here. So that's what's going that's on where, on this side. That's where Khaleesi's band can play. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So what got you involved in plants? I have a fine arts background, but quickly realized after graduating that I probably wasn't going to make a living sculpting. And um, really kind of got into horticulture because I've always been a gardener. My mom's always been a gardener. And it sort of evolved out of just one interesting job after another. And then I went eventually apprenticed at Stonecrop Gardens in Cold Spring, New York, where I later worked. Uh, I was mostly in the private sector. I was the head gardener for Bunny Williams, an interior de designer with a garden of note in Falls Village, Connecticut nice. for 13 years. <laughs> oh, and, wow. um, yeah. 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 It's sort of a... I would argue that like your fine arts degree in sculpture, you may have proven yourself wrong by moving into working with plants. This is still sculpture. Yes, yeah. absolutely. There's definitely <laughs> yeah. a connection. Living sculpture. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, here's an example of that. As you come into this entry garden, this sort of uh, evokes the Berkshire Hills. This was a, a design competition. It was University of Tennessee students who uh, won this, and we built this garden back in 2018. Uh, and this is Prairie Drop Seed Sporobolus. 
And actually, Eric burns this off in the uh, in the early spring. Like literally burns it. Bur literally, literally burns it. Which actually, the very first time last. So I've been here uh, coming on to two years. The same uh, for Eric. Well, I was walking. I was on the other side of the road, walking this way, and I saw this billowing smoke, and then I saw flames, <laughs> and I said, ran over here. It's like, what's going on? The gardens are on fire. And there, there's Eric. Like, you know creating a little forest fire on this parabolus. You have to bring a flame in hand. hand. <laughs> and you do it with a flamethrower? Yeah. Basically that must be a flame the yeah. most fun part of the job. It's fun, for sure. <laughs> it's a little stressful. Um, yeah. Do people uh, line up to see this happen? I would come out well, just to watch it, it was, burn it the garden down. It was popular on social media, I yes. will say that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Eric almost went viral. You would never know that this hill was just on fire six weeks ago. So this is the center house, and uh, we have an art gallery over here. So we have uh, art shows all through the year. We rotate artists about every four to six weeks. And we have a lot of art around, sculpture around the property as well. Some years we have an outdoor exhibit. Right now we have an artist, Anastasia Trina, who is sort of inspired. You can see a little bit of her stuff up there. Oh, wow, cool. Sort of fairy inspired. She does glass work, uh, pâté de, de verre technique, which she fires up in her own kiln and it's just it's really great so uh, really nice spring exhibit i think right now sort of corresponds with the season and then this green wall uh which eric's staff takes care of i think it's just pops right when you come into this building yeah it's amazing and there's artificial light so that kind of glows into the evening so that's really a nice advertisement actually from the <laughs> yeah. road so yeah. mm -hmm. it's great that's gorgeous also, it's nice to look at this and go, oh, I have this plant. I have that mm -hmm. plant. I wonder well, if I could sneak off well. with this one in my pocket. Right. <laughs> Each of these are individual buckets, so technically you probably could, yes. but they're a little hard to get off. I've the already cased the joint. <laughs> so we do a lot of classes in here. We've got the teaching kitchen or demonstration kitchen in this other space. You know, we get a lot of uh, great local chefs who come in, and we also do things like wine tastings and so forth. But this is a great classroom for anything. The light in here is really wonderful, so a lot of art classes mm -hmm. also take place in here. And it overlooks the oldest surviving garden at the garden, which is the Herb Garden, in 1937. And uh, we have this group of volunteers, the Herb Associates, and they actually help maintain the garden with the Hort staff, and they also harvest the herbs and make herb mustards and dressings and herb salts and all kinds of things like that. And this year, I think they're going to be making shrubs. Another shrubbery! Not the plants, but the thing you drink. <laughs> Perfect like for your boozes. Yes. Or not boozes. They right. make yeah, really make good spritzers. Virgin, yeah. yeah, like with just spritzers. Spritzers, yeah, yeah, all good. Back outside. Eric, do you want to tell them about what you did here? Sure. So, like Thaddeus said, it's our one of those our earliest gardens and and it's been since the 1950s has been largely taken care of entirely by the herb associates and so this has been a group of people who have come here with their parent their mothers and taken care of this garden and it's something that they take very very seriously and take close ownership of and the first thing I decided to do was completely redo it. <laughs> I bet that made you a popular person. Yeah, with I was like stepping on uh, eggshells for a bit. Yeah. But Which can be good really in your successful. garden. It had originally grass paths and kind of like dinky little stone edging. And mm. so in order to flatten 
the paths out, and I wanted to incorporate gravel, which I thought would be better horticulturally for uh, culturally for the herbs. I had to sort of replace all the edging stone to a bigger scale stone so I can really flatten those paths out. And it's been a great it success, and presence. people are really, really happy great. with it. Yeah. So it was something that was a fairly quick and easy fix and high impact for my first project here. So and all the generations nice. of, of herb gardeners forgave you? They all forgave me. Forever dedicated to Eric. Yes. <laughs> They're all happy with it. change is good sometimes. Yeah, change is good. It looks gorgeous. It makes me envy. I have all sorts of stonework I'm aspiring to do at home, and it's mm -hmm. inspiring me. Coming up, how is climate change changing things at the Berkshire Botanical Garden? More with Thaddeus Thompson and Eric Ruquist on the way. Plus, the word nerd and nerd watch. Did you see Harrison Ford and Amherst during graduation weekend this past weekend? If not, who is the most famous person you've spotted in the wild in the 413? And what were they doing? <laughs> Text us at 1-800-639-9120, and we'll read it at the end of the show, unless you sounded like a crazy stalker. Don't send us those stories. You're yep. listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. So, Eric, what's your favorite part of the garden slash favorite part to work on? I mean, I really do enjoy working on the collection under glass, and I felt like we were... So a bit of a, a deficit for, I mean, we don't have a lot of greenhouse space, but I've, I've been sort of trying to get more conservatory plants and greenhouse plants and then build the collection. I do have like this total pelargonium fetish that everyone jokes about. Um, I love scented pelargoniums and I love species pelargoniums and anything sort of unusual in that category. Yeah, that could be my, my current favorite. It's, that sounds like it's definitely in the running, if not the yeah. forerunner. Yeah. That's what I love, though. You got this, you know, passion for certain things in the collection. You'll say, you know, and Eric has a chance with. We're talking about art. I mean, the garden is a canvas, you know, and all the gardeners here and Eric are are painting this canvas, and nature paints this canvas every year, you know. So it changes all the time, and I, I think it's what our our guests come for and appreciate. It. We're here at the Berkshire Botanical Gardens. I'm Thaddeus Thompson, I'm the executive director. Hi, I'm Eric Requist, director of horticulture. This is the native plant meadow. This is the opposite of the cautionary tale garden. This is what we're, right. we're all trying to get back well, to there, when we can. There's a little bit of the cautionary tale in here because we first had to, you know, kind of get rid of the invasives. So what happened, um, a three year project of establishing this meadow. So we're gonna have the official opening of the meadow in August of this year. So we're really excited. We have about 170 species or so of native plants. And even getting to the issue of what defines native sometimes is kind yeah, of complicated. Right. So that was quite a bit of discussion here about the meadow. I see a lot of meadow gardens out there that are very prairie and Western native. Mm -hmm. And so they're very dramatic. They're, you know, especially in, late summer, early fall, and all those uh, yellow asteraceae plants are at eight feet tall, and it's just sort of like en enveloping you as you walk through the paths. But this is more of a Berkshire native, and occasionally there's some New York State natives. So it's yeah. very specific to the those New area. Yorkers, they like to believe they're from here, even <laughs> though right. they never <laughs> will be. Before you know it, they're going to take over this meadow. You know? <laughs> they're going to take all the choice parking spaces, too. 
your grass is, mm. your lawn is really integrated in a really cool way. Like it's always fun to see. Well, I like it a lot more. And so does my body since I'm a little allergic to grass <laughs> when lawns have more than just grass happening. That's a Housatonia. But don't put the gout weed in. No, Again. don't put gout weed on your lawn. <laughs> With the native uh, plant meadow, it's really, it's about the aesthetics of the meadow ultimately, but as much about the biodiversity of it. Hoping to have a good environment for our pollinators and yeah. lots of birds. I mean, we've had a, a decline in, in bird species over the last uh, 40 years of about 50%. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the numbers are startling. So, you know, really uh, want a beautiful area, but also just a really rich uh, area uh, from an ecological point of view. Speaking of an ecological point of view, has the museum over the course of its history tracked or been able to trace anything climatologically that's changed in the time that you've been open? Are things that were traditionally working well in the Berkshires not working as well? I mean, if you go to wine growing regions of the world, they've yeah. had to incorporate new grapes, even in like Bordeaux. What about here in the Berkshires? I can't actually speak to uh, the collection here. I don't know if Eric can, but I, I will say I was involved with what is now New England Botanic Garden before, and we actually saw how climate change there was uh, affecting the heritage, heritage apple orchard that we had. We saw southern pathogen come up that was not previously present and decimated uh, the heirloom apple collection. Mm. And it was interesting to be able to talk about it and say, you know, this is this is a pathogen that really didn't survive uh, our winters previously. So I know that gardens across the country are seeing things. Um, I'm not sure what I could point to here, but except the well, presence of a lot of invasives. Right. It is actually mostly pathogens that I'm sort of more concerned with. Ron Kujowski, who comes to consult with us every week and sort of walks the property and tells us what horrible thing is happening um, <laughs> and what horrible bug is happening. And, um, and he, He's like the Grim Reaper. He, <laughs> he exactly. It was such good humor. He's really, yeah, he's really cutting it right now. guy to tell you, like, Ron, you really should you slit your wrist now. on a pale horse. Yeah. Yeah. And I brought um, this scythe for a reason. I'm cutting it all down. <laughs> Uh, he is on my horticultural advisory committee, and uh, every meeting he features a new horrendous thing that's <laughs> coming down the pike. And it's all sort of, we joke about it. We're just like, oh, God, what, Ron, what else do you have to tell us? Keep him from and watching The Last of Us if he hasn't already. Not bacteria, not viruses, so fungus. Yes, that's the usual response. Spongy moths, Spongy jumping moth worms, and, all yeah. kinds of acrobatic and insects. The last <laughs> most concerning was, and it's interesting a lot because it is affected by climate, but there is something we're hoping doesn't develop, but it's a series of pathogens that are all native pathogens, but they've been kept in balance. But now that climate change is upon us, it is out of balance, and it could be very... Um, detrimental to our pines which oh, are such dear. a oh, part no. of our oh, important word. part of our landscape so yeah. that was the most gloom and doom so you're saying yeah. christmas is canceled is that what you're saying ho 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 but we try to bring joy to people <laughs> everything looks great here right now we, we only live one life of course short yeah. period of time enjoy it i regret nothing <laughs> so actually, no, this, here's a good example. So we're walking down towards Lucy's Garden, which is a topiary garden. And this was installed in 2019. And you can see some of these really fanciful animals. Yeah, topiary, really if you don't know, is when they shape bushes into objects. And I saw a turkey 
over in the, yeah, there was the main a area. There's a turkey over there. We got chairs. We got uh, various creatures, an elephant, a crocodile, and bear, and so forth. You know, this is a really fun garden. There's a, a little pavilion structure in the middle of it. But we also felt like we wanted to create more mystery around it, a sense of discovery and arrival. So uh, Eric's been working on a design for a hedge around this uh, that would really uh, be like a labyrinthine hedge going up, extending this way, and become a big feature of the garden. Because of the concern for beech leaf disease, and this is surrounded by a copper beech hedge, we've uh, come to a, a really neat compromise solution, expanding some of the copper beech, but adding the uh, carpinus uh, betulus that is not threatened. And talk about that. That's a really cool solution. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a number of factors. We have the prospect of having this beech leaf disease coming through. Um, it hasn't reached the Berkshires yet, but it's sort of coming down the pike. We Quite literally. Concerned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We already have existing beach on the property that I'm going to move because I really like the idea of encircling the topiaries with red foliage. And um, as it happens, I actually couldn't get enough copper beach to do the whole hedge so it worked out well on and so I ended up getting a 700 bare root carpina specialis European hornbeam and so what you'll what will happen eventually is you'll be walking serpentining through this labyrinthine hedge of green and then you it opens up into red foliage and topiary animals Amazing. So, and you can it, already imagine it. And yeah. you and the radio can imagine it too because you can't see it anyway. So we'll all imagine it together. <laughs> and, it, you know, the topiaries are really f a fun feature. I sort of grew up watching them um, mm -hmm. because I knew Lucy for many years. So they're kind of sentimental to me. I have lots of memories of them. But it's sort of like weirdly placed in a more naturalistic setting of the garden. And so in order to sort of make them less incongruous in the landscape, I decided to make this labyrinthine hedge sort of encircling it. What happens oftentimes is that people discover it and they're like, oh my God, there's an elephant and, and, a, and peacocks. And they're just sort of like, what is this doing here? And so this is sort of just to sort of reinforce that sensation of uh, discovery and yeah. surprise. And this, just so you know, doesn't usually look like this. Yeah. This is, you know, this is garden in evolution. Yeah. We had uh, the Martha Stewart Cottage Garden here. So oh. she had designed a, a garden for us that was sort of elaborated over time. We've picked Did up Snoop the Snoop Dogger buddy plant a garden. Yeah, over there we were with talking other about Snoop. Maybe like this, it's the Snoop uh, Cottage Garden. So I can show you my vegetables and see if you can grow that into a real big vegetable. It is at the moment the the Martha No More Cottage Garden because we've moved the cottage, but that cottage is up there with the green roof. And we'll do some planting around that, and then this becomes part of the hedge. So. I love it. And, you know, the garden is always changing, you know. So. Yeah, that's part of the fun. It's not so hard. A little harder to change a sculpture, but you're seeing you're sculpting with these things Absolutely. that are a little bit more malleable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so over to the left is our daylily border, or daylily, daylily walk, which is also very historic to our garden. And the original daylilies came from the New York Botanical Garden that has a similar daylily walk. It goes from... Uh, species daylilies at the top and chronologically different cultivars and they're all signed and so you a lot of people it's sort of funnily interactive because a lot of people are like oh look let's find our wedding anniversary or let's see what my you know my son's birthday and what cultivars you know on my birthday or whatever so it's really kind of fun, that is fun. and it is 
Right now it's all daffodils, but uh, daffodils will eventually be overcome with hemerocallis daylilies, and uh, it's a great display. I gotta show you a really cool tree here. This is actually really my, I think my favorite tree here. It's a weeping hemlock. I think it was planted in 1937. It's like a jungle gym all on its yeah, own. And I want to love it. I think they call it, it yeah. the yeah the grandfather tree, and they come and they have story hour under here. Oh wow, really? that yeah. is fun! And if you go, if you climb through, then this is kind of a small pinetum here. So you have a uh, an umbrella pine, right, Eric? It's got this beautiful bark. There's there yews beyond that, and it's kind of this neat little grove. It's a hidden spot. I shouldn't be giving the secret because I feel like this is my hidden spot, but other people have discovered it. When they can't find you, but when you're supposed to be in your office, we know where you're going to yeah, be. Yeah, right. I'll be under the hemlock. What do you think of that? It's pretty great to be. I want to climb all over it. There are a lot of these little hidden spots around the garden. Like in the in the uh, children's garden, for example, there are also uh, these neat little spots, and kids will find them. There's a rain garden kind of tucked away. Now, I think with all the work we're doing over the uh, the camp building, it opens up the, the woodland side of the garden, which has been kind of underappreciated. But there's a vernal pool that's over there that I think people will be able to see where things grow there that don't grow elsewhere in the garden. And uh, that's what we try to do, is provide sort of moments of discovery and excitement and joy to people as they come through here. Working for me. Thanks again to Thaddeus Thompson and Eric Ruquist for giving us a tour of the Berkshire Botanical Garden. It was the best. Later in the show, Nerdwatch. Did you spot Han Solo slash Indiana Jones slash Rick Deckard slash President What's-His-Name from Air Force One and Amherst during graduation this past weekend? If not, who is the most famous person you've spotted in the wild in the 413? And what were they up to? Text us 1-800-639-9120 and we'll read it at the end of the show. That's 1-800-639-9120. Up next, the word nerd on the German-French mashup that is the English language. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Oh, hello? Hello. Hello. Word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster, actually from Greenfield, from our dictionary in Springfield. We're going to do a linguistic history. Little bit, yeah. Do tell. English is primarily a Germanic language, which can be very surprising to anybody who uh, studies a romantic language because you hear all these words that are very obviously very closely related to English words. And yet, you know, so they're Latin based because they come from these, they sound just like the French word or, you know, a variation on the Spanish word or the Italian word. But the core of English is Germanic. The most basic words in the English language, the words that are used most frequently are almost all German words. So all of our definite, you know, our articles, definite and indefinite articles, the, uh, most of our prepositions. Busy prepositions, always on the go. Words like arm and hand and finger, like these things that you house, words that you use a lot as a child, words that kids learn early on. But the English language has its origins in the amalgamation of three dialects that came from kind of what is like, you know, northern, northwestern Europe, where Denmark and Friesland and those kinds of places are. There were these Friesland. three Germanic. Yeah, back when we named places for like what you experienced there. Was Friesland <laughs> Iceland or was Friesland Greenland? Because there's that whole big thing about Greenland's actually icier than Iceland is, whatever. So. But then we get into things like Jutland. Why Jutland? 
I have no idea what that is. Jutland is basically Denmark. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Where's well, and 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 Friesland is part of the Netherlands now. Okay. Okay, but a very very long time ago, there were these three Germanic tribes that came over and settled what is the island now known as Great Britain. They were the Jutes, the Angles, and the Saxons. Also, the Jutes yes. from Jutland. <laughs> yes, exactly. And were the Angles the Saxons from Saxon uh, Saxony? And, and were the Angles <laughs> the cutest of them all? You know, like acute Angles. Or is uh, that uh, joke uh, uh. too obtuse? Oh my God! Wow. The Angles <laughs> were charming enough to ha- to really grant their name to England. So they they had they had, they did have some kind of pull, Monty. I think you're onto something there. And they spoke uh, mutually intelligible dialects, but they were different enough. And they all kind of, you know, they did some conquering, they did some uh, some settling, and their dialects all together formed what is the what was the basis of Old English, what became Old English. It's the Voltron so, of English. So English kind of like percolated by itself, somewhat in isolation, until in 1066, there was a conqueror, William the Conqueror, who came over from part of France known as Normandy. He was a Norman French. And there's a big battle. He won. And as a result of him winning, he really changed the linguistic history of the English language. He decided that he was going to bring these Norman French speakers over to the island and put them in all the positions of power. So for about 200 years, there is basically no written record of English. There is this gap in the record of of written English because everything was done in French. The language of government, administration, literature, everything. The French speakers were the ones in power and so they were creating the written records. 200 years on, English kind of reemerges in the time of Chaucer and it is a new creation. It is a new language at that point. It has had this enormous influx of these Norman French words, which are, of course, Latinate words. And the resulting language is this is this uh, beautiful, bizarre combination <laughs> of the two bases of the language. Even if you read Chaucer now, though, it's almost unintelligible to the contemporary English speaker. So what has transitioned it from being Germanic in origin and those three tribes coming to the island that we now know as England, and then the Norman coming in and adding that influence, how come Chaucer's English is so much different than the English that we speak today? Well, because it is still hundreds of years old. It's Middle English, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the 1400s. And that's just a that's a very long time for a language to develop. We can even think back to, you know, the, the writings of the colonial period of the United States. And there are different turns of phrases. There are phrases that don't make sense to us anymore. And those are just a couple hundred years old. But, you know, 1400s, that's significantly longer ago. But the core grammar of the language is still Germanic. And it was in the time of Chaucer. What happened as a result of the Norman conquest is that the language got new vocabulary. It didn't really change grammatically. The grammar was kind of already set, although it did lose endings over time. It lost inflections. You know, you learn a language like French or German or Spanish, and you have to know what the gender, what the grammatical gender of a word is, and you have to like conjugate things in all these ways. And English has its own complications and charms, but it doesn't really have inflections 
in very many cases at all, right? We've got singular and plural, and we have great ability of adjectives and adverbs, and we have the tenses for our verbs. But besides that, we really don't have very much. It's kind of nice that English is so neutral in that way, because trying to remember gendering of words in other languages is often a little bit of a hassle. Oh, it totally is. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the interesting results of this kind of dual basis of, or this, like, you know, starting uh, around again, and like as a result of the Norman conquest. Thanks, English... Battle of Hastings. AJ Hastings on no. Annie Amherst. Oh, they went out of business, I think. That's sad. Always for the local connection, yeah. even to 1066. Tie it in. The dictionary in Springfield, Marion Webster. <laughs> Sorry, continue, Emily Rooster. Fabulous 413. This is why we are here. Shout out. <laughs> But one of the really fascinating things is how English absorbed words. It took on additional terms for existing things. <laughs> so we ended up with all these pairs of words. Sometimes they're, they're very close to synonyms, and other times they have different connotations attached to them. For example, the word house is as old as Old English. It's Germanic-based, and the word mansion is a French word that came in with that Norman conquest. Now, the word mansion originally referred to any kind of dwelling at all. It could be a shack, it could be a tent, it could be anything. But the two words, the one was already in the language, the other one got brought into the language, and the meanings differentiated. And they differentiated in a way that was that's actually very typical for these French borrowings, these words that were adopted later. The French borrowing often retains some of the prestige that it had as the language being spoken primarily by the people in power at the time. So does the French always make it sound fancier? Like, so house we think of is like you live in a house, that's fine. Or maybe even the German like Hofbrau house, H-A-U-S type thing, but then mansion, ho, 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 mansion. Well, I think you'd see like the French people are in charge. That's now aristocracy. And they're talking about z their maisons. And now you get mansion because you've seen the fancy people in their mansion in their maisons, but you're mispronouncing it or rather you're porting it into a Germanic pronunciation of the word kind of to make it fancier. Oh, sometimes we do that. Yeah. And other times we just trash it completely. Right? I mean, we'll, we'll borrow a word and, and just flatten out any, any, ling any, like, of, no. its, any no, of its history. No linguistic typography here. None. That's your whole damn raisin after, ain't it? But often it is true that the words that are the words for fancier things ended up right. These words were synonymous. And then the one took on you specifically for the for the fancy thing, the house and mansion. You know, another example is offspring and progeny. So offspring. You gotta keep them separated. It's very Germanic, really. It tip in its in its construction. If you if you're become familiar with these things, you can kind of recognize it, right? It's like this off and spring. It's a word that's like, you know, two other words plopped together in Germanic fashion. And they're both very basic words. They're very familiar words. Off spring, right? It's something that has sprung off from another thing. Progeny, meanwhile, is definitely Latin. Again, and if you want to make it fancy, make it French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. Or Latin. Yeah, you can, you can, yes, you, you can make it fancy. You know, I think that it it's also seems like it creates distance mm. in some ways. You know, uh, another, you, uh, Monty, of course, will love this. You know, the words for bodily functions yes. and um, bodily emissions. We yes. have the words that are... Germanic are the swear words. They're the words you're not allowed to say. Oh. Um, 
in some settings. And then the Latin word is the word that you know appears in the medical journals. And so the, the Latin-based word can also provide a kind of distance and propriety, and they're not usually earthier words. What are some of the bodily function ones that are fancier in French, though? <laughs> if we can't say them in, in the Germanic-based English because of FCC <laughs> violations, the only one I can think of is derrière. Well, oh, excrement, Monty. Even the word excrement mm-hmm. is French. Right. No, yeah. I mean, that's the one you can say. Uh-huh. What's the one I didn't say? It does begin with an S. <laughs> yes. See how well-behaved I'm being? Our <laughs> so director, well Tony Dunn, and but, CEO, Matt Abramovitz. Yeah. But then there's, yeah. like, other ones from, like, I would assume that, like, you know, we get bidet and, like, douche and, like, other things. Sure. Are we allowed yeah. to say those? I don't know. Those are okay. I think so. Yeah, I think they are. Now, there's another category of, of these pairs that I think is also really interesting. And that is the food words. Uh-huh. So Because we, who wants you know, to eat German food? Actually, German food can be yeah. really delicious. We like going to the student prince. Yes. Yeah. More pickles, more better. <laughs> also, pig knuckles are delicious. <laughs> so Old English had pig and swine, but we got pork from French. That does sound fancier. Yeah, <laughs> right. And the same thing. It, like, it used. I mean, it, I think what what used to be the case is that we would call the thing that was raised on the farm by one name, and then when it was on the plate, prepared in whatever way it needed to be prepared, it was still called by its animal name. Right. Mm. But when we got these words from Norman French, we now had an opportunity to make a distinction between the creature and the dish. This also happened with you know cow or ox is the animal, and then you get beef. Right. You have sheep, and now you can also eat mutton. My mom got freaked out when my when when my son was very young when he said we're having cow for dinner tonight. She didn't like that. <laughs> I'm like, but it is what it is, ma. Get used to it. But it's kind yeah. of be, French has become the euphemism to help us distance ourselves from the fact that we're actually taking a life to yeah. sustain our own. And then we get poultry from that too, right? I'm sure. Yes. Now, right. Does this qualify actually as a euphemism? I don't know. Did it originally? I don't know. Right. There is an interesting question there. I think it doesn't qualify as a euphemism anymore because beef simply is what we call it. It's what's for but... dinner. Beef. It's what's for dinner. But was it a convenient distinction? Did it did it provide distance to people? And does it still actually? I think it I think it does. Certainly. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's helpful to have that distance. Well, yeah, if you feel guilty about eating meat, for sure. Speak it in French. But then, like, in, when we start getting into other th- other things that you can eat, especially other animals that you can eat, we have to refer to them by their, their base name because we don't have that connection anymore. Right. We don't have, like, some something to create that distance. Like, when you're eating elk, you're just eating elk. But when we're eating snails, we love to say escargot. That's because when you say you're eating, I mean, for the same <laughs> other reasons, like, yeah, we're going to eat snails. I'm going to go get snails. Actually, now I kind of want some. Me too. I have to make an H-Mart trip to get rice anyway. Maybe I'll pick some up. Sounds good. Yes. Are there other pairs? Emily Brewster, resident Worcester from Merriam-Webster, in the English language now, where the German and the French are fighting it out for uh, common usage in our modern parlance? Sure. I mean, they, they, the battle is is fought, right? The battle is mm-hmm. fought, and these words have just kind of settled into context where one is more appropriate than another. You have word live, dwell, abide. The dude abides. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. Those are all Germanic-based. Those are all really, really, really old, as old as the language itself. And then you have a word like reside, which also gives us residence mm-hmm. right? and resident and there is something elevated about those words. 
it's very clear if you look at writings, poetry, literature, at how English writers use these words to provide different connotations, also to give contrast to different things. Sometimes it's just used because it's variation. We have such a wealth of words in part because we have these near synonyms all over the place. And so we can just throw them into poems and stories and songs and you don't have to be so repetitious, right? You can say, I live there, I shall abide. They resided by blah, blah, blah. It really provides a lot of richness to the language. It's almost as if the French have that sort of, I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> I've been waiting to say that the whole Je time. Quoi. I know what. Anyway, <laughs> are there any grammatical things that we held on to or that we shifted towards French as opposed to keeping the Germanic style of doing it? It's always funny when we when we kind of Frenchify a word that isn't supposed to be French. You know, English and French have this very complicated relationship where English speakers have a, actually goes both ways. Uh, but you take a word like, uh, you know, a, a prefix menu. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> we as English speakers, we know it's French. And so if we, we don't know fix. the rules of French, we will say prefix, right? But it's actually... As I learned from my colleague, Peter Sokolowski, Shameless plug. that it is prefix. So don't try to sound fancy by saying prefix because you're incorrect. Well, I mean, <laughs> sure, try to sound fancy. I don't know. But it, like, if you want to be true to, if you want to actually pronounce it the way that a French person would, then that's what you got to do. You say prefix and then somebody will ask you if you actually mean appetizers. Pre, post. <laughs> There's a lot of prefixes that you can use. Anti, antipasto. Mm, yeah. <laughs> It opposes other pasta. Yes. It is pro-rice. Words are not restrained by their histories. They can go and do whatever whatever the speakers of the language use them to do. Give us all of your words and none of your rules. Right. That's <laughs> the American much. way. <laughs> I guess lesson learned that if you're one of those people that gets frustrated because you have to push two to make it in English on the uh, phone tree that you're calling, know that you are also speaking German and French, even if you don't acknowledge it. Maybe broaden your horizons to the breadth and depth of the languages that exist in the world, because they may have made up your own. <laughs> Definitely you just did. Just zero for operator. Yeah. <laughs> I do that all the time, too. Take me right to a human. Got a linguistic conundrum or a lexicographical pet peeve that you want to ask the word nerd about? Email us, thefab413 at nepm.org, or text one 800 639 9120. And while you're at it, text us if you're one of the lucky ones who spotted Harrison Ford in Amherst this past weekend. If not, who is the most famous person you spotted in the wild in the 413 and what were they doing? Text us at 1-800-639-9120 and we'll read it at the end of the show. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the fabulous 413 article from Mass Live. Dateline Amherst, written by my friend Dave Eisenstatter. Actor Harrison Ford took in the sights at Amherst's regular farmer's market on Memorial Day weekend. While not necessarily the wretched hive of scum and villainy that Ford's character Han Solo encountered in Star Wars at Mos Eisley, the market does have a number of interesting characters. Saw a lot of social media buzz over the weekend about the fact that Harrison Ford was in Amherst. Mm -hmm. 
So it seemed only appropriate they would say maybe. He had Vietnamese food. Yeah, tell that story. Oh, no, there's no story. There's just like there's a receipt from the Saigon in, in Amherst. And there it is, like with his name down at the bottom. They they blacked everything else out so that you can't like go tracking anybody. But like it's just really cool to see where <laughs> to like follow him like Sasquatch. Yeah. Accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be interesting to see. I want to go look that up now to see what he ordered at Miss Saigon. And I did hear, if, I think it's in the uh, same piece in Mass Live about his uh, Antonio's pizzas that, yes, various uh, slices at Antonio's. One was pepperoni and sausage and one tomato basil. We could have invited him to Pizza Quest. Oh, no, he's not got the right pizza. We have been asking you this hour whether or not you have either seen Harrison Ford in the wild or whether you have spotted a celebrity. And several of you have texted us at one 800 639-9120. Including Gary from Northampton, who said, not the most famous, but his favorite. I'm assuming your your pronouns, and I'm sorry. I ran into Mr. Rogers at the corner of Main and Pleasant Street in Northampton. He was headed to Eric Carl's studio to do a piece for his show. A large group of young adults were following him, totally in awe, giggling and jockeying for position to be close to him. And he turned to me, waiting for the walk light to come on, and smiled and lifted his eyes as in in mild embarrassment. And the best thing about that is I know exactly what piece, and we most of us know exactly what piece he's talking about. Yeah, a wonderful piece that it's worth checking out just for scenes of Northampton, but also Mr. Rogers. For sure. And Eric Carl. Yeah. Mike from East Hampton texted in to say, one, I met actor Jeffrey Wright at an Amherst College reunion. I don't know if that counts as in the wild if you went to school with Je- with uh, Jeffrey Wright. Might but- not have been the same year, in which case... I think still counts. Or if he wasn't famous when you went to school and then became famous and then you realized that he was famous, I will count. I think that counts right. as in the wild. I met Allison Janney that way, but not in the 413. So that's a different story. Oh. She Did went you go to, to Kenyon. With, I didn't know that. Yeah. At the same year as you? No. She was one of the first classes of women because Kenyon used to be all men and she's in one of the first classes to graduate. I met another a star of the West Wing, Corbin Burnson, topless both of us on the beach at uh, the Ashfield Lake House mm-hmm. and the owner of the Ashfield Lake House, Dree Rawlings, took a picture of the two white bald men talking on the beach <laughs> and texted it to me. And I said, please do not ever let this photo see the light of day. Right. Mike from East Hampton continued in his text Two, I met Frank Black at the Eastworks building and I hear he's a frequent site there. Frank Black, Black Francis, Charles Thompson, Amherst resident, rock god from Pixies who we were just playing there. He also added, Mike added, Wicked love the show so far. Keep it coming. Oh, thanks. Very sweet. Our engineer Betsy said her mom made me go to Chris Dautry while he was eating at an Italian restaurant before performing at the Big E and try to get him to autograph the back of their receipt. She did not believe he was a celebrity but went up regardless with much prodding. He was nice and she has felt bad for interrupting his dinner ever since. My wife, who would never do this normally, was in labor with our last child, Pax, who's now 10 years old, and Dax Shepard was eating at Magpie while filming in the area and she with labor courage walked up to him and said i love parenthood it's a great show she would never have normally done that i thought that was pretty cool (laughs) carolyn from greenfield texted i met president carter on a plane from atlanta to hartford in october 1999 he was attending a funeral in connecticut i believe and shook hands with all of the passengers before we took off pretty cool didn't actually happen in the 413 but (laughs) since carolyn is from greenfield we'll allow it any other fun sightings you've had? Well, I mean, like, there's the obvious ones of Jay Maskus. And when I used to work at what is now, I do believe, Share Coffee, but used to be Rayo's in Amherst, he would come in in the afternoons and grab a coffee and, like, a chair and, like, hang out in the corner, which, and we would just try not to fan 
too hard over it. Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Junior fame. I saw uh, I saw Jay Maskus at the Montague Book Mill before I was really making my way in the world of of rock radio at the time, and I had my young my oldest child in my arms, and I said, "Will you give him a rock and roll blessing?" And Jay Maskus put his hand on my son Atticus and just went, "Ooh!" And I thought it was the coolest thing. That is kind of the coolest <laughs> thing. I was at Sil- the the dearly departed Sylvester's restaurant in Northampton getting a coffee as I did every morning. And I looked at the midsection of a human being who was quite, quite clearly tall. And when my eyes went up to the top of the midsection of that human being, it was the actor Jane Lynch, which was amazing <laughs> and was kind of like a, a, a welcome surprise. Also in Sylvester's, uh, I was told by my boss at the time that J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, was there. And I ran from what I was doing across the street over to Sylvester's to try to see if J.K. Rowling was there and if I could interview her. And uh, it turned out to be Rosemary Kane, who was <laughs> a guest on our show on St. Patrick's Day. She's Irish. She's not English. They she does look... bear a tiny no. resemblance to J.K. No. Rowling. There are pictures of her on the NEPM site that you can find on our web on our page. She no, no. Years and years ago, when we still all loved J.K. Rowling in the way that we could have, maybe, um, she looked a little more like her. So, so Still no. Yeah. Well, we want to know, we'll, if you uh, text us again throughout the course of the day, we'll, we'll read your text of famous sightings. And hopefully you got to see Harrison Ford. I know my buddy Scooter got to see him at the graduation. <laughs> Pretty cool. Well, tomorrow in the fabulous 413, did you know that the first and currently only black woman to win two Oscars is from Springfield, Massachusetts. And Thursday in the Fabulous 413, we'll talk with that two-time Oscar winner, Ruth E. Carter. And we'll have our weekly chat with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. The clock is ticking on the debt ceiling, and Congressman McGovern may be at the center of this debate. And we'll ask your questions of him if you got one. And we still want to know what your favorite or least favorite asparagus recipe is. Send us an email or a voice memo at thefab413 at nepm.org. Or you can text us 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony. Over the mountain and through the hills done. Our engineer is Betsy. They'll never find me now. Lankdo. Our technical team is Bart. Do I want to know why you have the first aid kit out, Rankin? <laughs> Kara, Nowhere is Quiet Foster, and Punk Rude Boy Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Whiskey Treaty Roadshow, Little Shop of Horrors, Monty Python, Schoolhouse Rock, Snoop Dogg, Raising Arizona, Sam Elliott, Bridget Bardot, and Serge Gangborg, The Pixies, and Dinosaur Jr. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty Belmonte, see you tomorrow.